ICCC. Um, thank you very much for this opportunity, and thank you, Annie, for joining me. Uh, we wish you, uh, your family, as well as your relatives and friends, be blessed and protected from this uh, scripture reading. Uh, we are reading the um, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 41. The Yoni will read the Korean version. 아, 예수님께서는 갈릴리의 버나움이란 마을로 내려가셔서 안식일에 사람들을 가지셨습니다. 사람들은 예수님의 가르침에 놀랐습니다. 그것은 예수님의 말씀에 권위가 있었기 때문입니다. 회당에 더러운 귀신의 영에 사로잡힌 사람이 있었습니다. 그가 큰 소리로 외쳤습니다. 나사렛 사람 예수님, 당신이 우리와 무슨 상관이 있습니까? 우리를 없애려고 오셨습니까? 나는 당신이 누군지 압니다. 당신은 하나님의 거룩한 자입니다. 예수님께서 그를 꾸짖으셨습니다. 조용히 하여라. 그리고 그 사람에게 나와라. 귀신이 그를 사람들 가운데 쓰러뜨려 놓고 떠나갔는데 그 사람에게 상처는 입히지 않았습니다. 사람들은 매우 놀라며 서로 말했습니다. 이것이 무슨 말씀인가? 권위와 능력을 가지고 더러운 귀신에게 명령을 하니 그것들이 나가는구나. 예수님에 관한 소문이 그 지위의 모든 지역에 점점 퍼져나갔습니다. 예수님께서 회당을 떠나 시몬의 집으로 들어가셨습니다. 그런데 시몬의 장모가 높은 열로 심하게 앓고 있었습니다. 사람들이 그를 위해 예수님께 부탁을 드렸습니다. 예수님께서 시몬의 장모에게 가까이 다가가 보시고 열병을 꾸짖으셨습니다. 그러자 열이 내리고 장모는 즉시 일어나서 예수님과 제자들을 섬겼습니다. 해가 질때 사람들은 여러 가지 병을 앓고 있는 사람들을 예수님께로 데리고 왔습니다. 예수님께서 그들 모두에게 손을 얹으시고 고쳐주셨습니다. 귀신들도 많은 사람에게서 떠나가며 소리를 질렀습니다. 당신은 하나님의 아들입니다. 그러나 예수님께서 귀신들을 꾸짖어 말하지 못하게 하셨습니다. 그것은 그들이 예수님이 그리스도라는 것을 알고 있었기 때문입니다. 아멘. Then he went down to the Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, Sabbath he taught the people. He was amazed at his teaching. Because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away, what do you want to with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, Come out of him, then. The demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words there are? With the authority and power, he gives order to impure spirit, and they come, come out. And the news around him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Then Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hand on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But 
he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Amen. Thank you. So now I'd like to introduce our speaker for today. Um, uh, his name is Max DePas. I think many of you know Max. Um, he's an elder here at CCC. He moved into the Nichita area um, around July of last year with his wife Dorothy and their three children, Max Jr., Michelle, and Kendra. So Max was born and raised in Ghana, but was living in Virginia prior to coming to Thailand for work. Um, today, Max, as you see from the scripture reading, he's going to walk us through um, Luke 4, 31 through 41, where we will learn about some of the earliest teachings of Jesus Christ. So let's make sure we give him a warm CCC welcome as he comes to the stage. Thank you, Roger, for the nice introduction. Good morning, CCC. Uh, we thank God for today. Um, it's, it's a blessing to be alive. Um, if we, we just had of the shooting yesterday, and um, there are a lot of people who are grieving right now, and uh, our hearts go to them. Uh, we should be praying for this nation um, because some of these things are unheard of in a place like Thailand. But as you can see, this just reflects the nature of the fallen world we live in and the fact that no matter where you are, the enemy is at work and is causing harm to the lives of people. So we should, we should keep this nation in prayer as we do for other nations where we come from, that God will protect this land uh, and save us from all of this evil that is happening around us. Uh, but we are grateful to God that we are alive and we can gather here on Sunday uh, to fellowship. Uh, it's a blessing, it's a privilege, and uh, we don't take that for granted at all. Amen. Uh, and I'm particularly excited to be called upon to share the Word of God today, and I just pray that the Spirit of God will speak to you, that it will not be me speaking, that uh, you hear from the voice of God today uh, what He has for you. So shall we start with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We are grateful to be here uh, in CCC. Uh, we thank you that you have called us to be your children. We did not elect ourselves to be your children, but that you have shown mercy upon us and decided to bestow upon us righteousness. And we are grateful to you. Uh, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you will speak to us. Holy Spirit, I surround myself unto you, speak to your people today, and uh, reveal the will, the purposes, and the plans of God to all of us here, so that we will live here blessed than we came. We thank and we honor you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me try to sort out a couple of papers here. Thank uh, okay, um, as you know, we have been going through the book of Luke um, for some time now, so we are still in the book of Luke, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> we are still working on the book of Luke, um, and as most of you know, uh, about two Sundays ago, we started with uh, Luke chapter 4. And today we are still somewhere in, in Luke chapter 4, so we will continue from where we left off last Sunday. Um, and uh, if you recall, last Sunday 
uh, Brother Mike talked about um, Jesus' uh, preaching or teaching in Nazareth, where he comes from, and the opposition he encountered there, and the fact that he also was tempted in, in the wilderness, and, and some lessons that we, we, we learned from there. So um, today we're just moving further down uh, from where Brother Michael left, um, and we will hopefully then draw a few lessons from the scriptures uh, that have been read to us just a moment ago. Uh, as, as we go through step by step uh, uh, this, uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, as, as was read, our main scripture is taken from the book of uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 uh, to 41. So that's where we are, we'll be working today. Uh, but I will, I will back up a little bit to uh, um, some of the scriptures that was, were read last week, uh, primarily those ones that deal with uh, the teaching um, in a synagogue in Nazareth, uh, because some of those um, lessons pertain to what I'm going to be talking about today. So I'll back up a little bit, so uh, please bear with me. Uh, but today we are, will be focusing primarily on, um, on Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 41. So let me see, I have um, a case here. Okay, perfect. So we'll be attempting to answer a few questions, and hopefully in the process be able to draw lessons from uh, these questions that uh, Luke has already answered, they're in the scripture, the answers are in the scripture, but we will, we will study this together and then hopefully be able to learn some things from them and apply them in our Christian work. So the first question is, what was the primary means of delivering his mission message? And in this case, his means Jesus uh, uh, is the one that we are talking about. And then I would even add, why was he using this primary method of, of delivering his mission message? The second question will be, why did Jesus respond to, uh, um, how did Jesus respond to opposition to his mission? Uh, that's, that these are, there are some uh, very important lessons there that we need to learn uh, concerning this. And the last one has to do with what impact did he have on his audience through his teaching and authority over demons? So these are the three questions we'll be attempting to answer. But as I, as I said, there are lessons that are in this that uh, we can draw. Now, I'd like to show this slide to start us off. Um, this slide uh, was, uh, I, I took it from um, uh, Prestep Austin. It's, it's a website. Uh, somebody attempted to put in a graph the faces of Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry, uh, 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 so that it will help us to sort of picture this on one page. Yeah? So the person, uh, th what he did was he took the, the account of Luke. Uh, so this is all of Luke, not only Luke chapter 4. But all of the book of Luke uh, is in there. And um, you will see that the first um, three chapters of Luke um, talk mainly about uh, the preparation phase of Jesus' ministry. So uh, here you're talking about when he was born and uh, when he started growing up. And we've gone through all of these uh, passages, by the way. I'm sure you may have heard um, uh, messages on them. And then it goes all the way to when he was baptized by John the Baptist and also was baptized in the Holy Ghost, and then eventually was tested uh, in the wilderness. So it goes all the way up to that. That's, that is the preparation phase of his ministry. 30 years. This phase lasted for 30 years. So as you can see, the, the preparation phase of Jesus' ministry was much longer than any other phase of his ministry. And this is very important. He spent more time preparing for his ministry than he did spend time 
actually executing the duties of that ministry. And I think that for us, this is a very important lesson, that it's important that we spend more time with God for him to equip us and, and, and to enable us for the tasks and purposes that he has for us uh, and so, so that we can be more effective in what he's called us to do. So preparation is, is, is 30 years, um, so uh, it's quite vital. And then there's the phase called identification. Identification is when he begins to assert himself, when he begins to identify as the Christ, um, uh, as the Christ. So uh, this is also very important. Uh, and as you can see, there are a lot of verses there. So the identification phase started when he read that scripture in, in Nazareth, when he read uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when he said, The Spirit of God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and all of that, right? So he began to identify and to assert himself as the Messiah. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that, uh, and again, we'll go through the scriptures, that much of his trouble started during the identification phase. Uh, when he began to say, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, then pe people took notice of him, number one, and people began to question uh, his identity and the claims that he was making. So this is a very important phase of his ministry, and that's where we are now uh, in the book of Matthew. We'll go through that uh, in, in much in-depth in this, in this uh, piece of uh, sermon. And then there is this large patch of scripture in Luke, which um, uh, the person who put uh, this together said this is called the instruction phase of his ministry. And what that means is, is the phase where Jesus teaches and does different things for people to actually uh, know that indeed he is the Christ. So this instruction phase actually validated his, uh, his ministry. Um, and then we have the sacrifice phase, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with. Now the sacrifice phase only lasted for a couple of days. In fact, uh, you see that um, you know, much of the events around uh, um, his death took place in about eight days. Uh, and then we don't want to leave out an important phase, which is the day of Pentecost, when he actually um, um, released the Holy Spirit upon his disciples for them to carry on. So these are, these are the phases, because it's still, it's still an important phase in the ministry of Jesus. The release of the Holy Spirit actually uh, uh, gave the disciples the strength and the ability to carry on with the work that he, Jesus, had started. So these are the phases, um, and I think this is a very useful tool to help us to sort of picture uh, where we're going with, uh, with our series in Luke. I'm not sure we'll get to all of these. We'll go through all of these scriptures, but just to put this in perspective, um, it, it helps us to move in that way. Okay, so we are at the identification phase uh, because we are in the book of Luke, chapter 4. That is where we are now uh, today. So as I said, uh, in, in Luke chapter 4, verses 22, um, Jesus was uh, teaching at a synagogue in, in Nazareth, where he comes from. And um, um, the fact was that the nature of his teaching was so different from the teaching that the people were so used to. Uh, according to their own account, they say he taught with power and authority. And this is not the only first time he would do that. He would repeat that uh, again in Luke uh, chapter Chapter 4, verses 31. But we'll get there soon. But the first instance where he actually started teaching uh, was around Luke uh, 4, 22. 
and he taught them and he declared that he was the Messiah indeed and that the Spirit of God had anointed him for ministry. And uh, in the process of teaching, the Bible said that the people were uh, amazed, number one, and number two, that um, they began to wonder, uh, who is this guy? So this is Nazareth. This is his hometown, right? He started teaching and people began to ask, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, isn't this the guy we know around here, uh, you know, who a couple of years ago was fixing my, uh, my chair uh, or was fixing my table uh, or was taking care of my broken equipment in the house? Um, uh, and now he turns around and comes back and says he is the Messiah. So people took notice of him and began to ask questions. Who is this guy? Who is he to claim to be the Messiah? That was the overriding question on the minds of people at the time when Jesus declared or identified himself as the Messiah. Yeah? Um, and I believe that, um, you know, in life, in general, uh, you know, people usually don't take notice of a lot of things uh, until you get to a point where you begin to identify yourself. I'm sure a lot of people here will, will, uh, will relate to this. Uh, if you begin to identify yourself either as a leader or as somebody who has a vision or somebody who has a purpose, then people begin to take notice. But all this while, when you were with the people and you had not identified yourself, everybody was cool with you. Everybody said, all right, we, we are cool. But once you begin to identify yourself, then people begin to take notice and people begin to ask questions. Now, that is not to say that some of the questions people ask are not legitimate. Sometimes those questions are indeed legitimate. They need to ask questions because every claim must be tested for validity, right? So if you claim to be a Messiah, well, let's make sure that this claim is actually valid. Uh, or if you claim to be a leader, then your leadership must be proven in some way. So sometimes the questions that people ask are not necessarily wrong. But there are other times when people actually ask the wrong questions too, uh, for, for the wrong reasons. And Jesus is, in the case of Jesus, people actually were asking uh, these questions with a different intent altogether, uh, uh, as, as we've noted. So here we say that, um, you know, as it was with Jesus, so is it with us? Uh, if we identify ourselves as the children of God, people will ask questions. People will take notice of us. Whoever is listening to me today, if you say you are a child of God, the people you live with, your own household, the society, your workplace, the nation, people take notice um, that indeed this person has said he's a child of God. And the notice they take uh, is, is, is a function of the fact that they expect that once you say you are a child of God, there are certain things that you should do and there are certain things that you should not do. Okay? So we all have to, we all have to bear this in mind that the experience of Jesus applies to us as his followers. So if people are asking, isn't this the carpenter's son? People will equally be asking, isn't this this person that, isn't that that person that, especially when we have a history in our lives. So people will take notice of us. People will ask questions. Uh, but we should not be threatened by the questions that people ask. I think that is the bottom line. Uh, people indeed have a right to ask questions. But it is our responsibility to make sure that our response is fitting, our response is driven by the faith and the beliefs that we have. 
So don't be offended when people ask you questions. Uh, that's the point I'm trying to get at here. Don't be offended. People ask you questions. But please know that they're asking questions because there are questions that need to be asked because of the identification uh, that you have, uh, you have given to yourself. So, so um, we see that Jesus necessarily did not take offense at the questions they asked, but we also want to understand uh, what was the perspective of the people who were actually asking the questions that Jesus asked. Because there are two people involved in this type of uh, 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 exchange, right? Jesus on one side and his audience on one side, right? What was their perspective? What was it that caused them to ask the questions they asked? Uh, in order for us to really uh, understand that, it is important for us to sort of draw out two things that Jesus said that even uh, <laughs> caused the people to ask some of the questions they asked. Um, in the process of teaching in Luke chapter 4, verses 22, um, the people were expecting that Jesus would do miracles, right? Uh, because they thought that he had done miracles in the, in the nearby town in Capernaum. So now that he is in his hometown, they expected that he would do similar miracles over there. And Jesus, already prejudging the intents, uh, actually gave them two examples uh, of the fact that it was not obligatory on him to do those miracles in Nazareth. He gave them two examples. Uh, and these examples were actually founded in their own history. Number one, the first example he gave them was that uh, there were many widows uh, in the land of Israel, but God decided to bless a widow who was outside of the land of Israel, in the land of Sidon, whose name uh, is called the woman of Zarephath. God allowed Elisha to visit this woman and to bless this woman, uh, even though there were other widows in Israel. So God did not minister to them. So that was the first example he gave them. Uh, and we will get into uh, why these people were angry so much about this. That's the first example. The second example was that there were many lepers in the land of Israel. And as all of us know, uh, back then in the days, if you were a leper, you, they would throw you outside the, uh, the city gate. So the lepers actually lived outside the city gate. So if you are coming into the city, you will see that there are people who were lepers. But Jesus said, there were, even though there were many lepers in Israel, God decided to heal a leper who is not an Israelite or who is not a Jew. He healed Naaman, which, which, uh, who everybody knew was a Syrian. So again, uh, so God, Jesus, uh, God is healing uh, a woman who is not uh, a Jew. Uh, God has ministered to a widow who is not a Jew. And God has healed a man who is not a Jew. Now, the Bible says that when he mentioned these two examples, the people were very furious. Now, their questions turned into uh, Medra's thoughts. And that's why I said that people can ask questions, but what is the intent which way they ask the questions? So once Jesus gave those two examples, he said that they were so furious that they wanted to actually cast him out of the gates of the city and actually throw him down headlong and stone him because he had said some things that were against their belief system. So that takes me to my next point. Why are people asking the questions they're asking? Are they asking the question because they're curious to understand or they're asking the question because you have said some things or you've done some things that are against their belief system? That is fundamentally important. And how do you address matters like this uh, if you are confronted with them? So the people were angry because Jesus had uh, explained that um, there are other people other than Jews who were deserving of the mercy of God. 
Uh, and that was something that you should not say back in those days in that region. Because the Jews believed that they were the only chosen people, and all other people who were Gentiles were not deserving of God's mercy. So that is something that they could not take. It was an offense to them that Jesus would use uh, Gentiles as examples in the sermon in the synagogue in the Jewish land. So the belief system of the people was in itself a problem. So you can understand from here that the questions they were asking were not out of curiosity, but they were things that related to their belief system, belief system. So, you know, uh, this, is, this is something that we all have to learn from. If you are asking questions, please make sure that your questions are coming from a good place. Uh, if it is coming from a heart that is, uh, is, is, is flawed, if it's coming from a perspective that is flawed, then it means that the actions that will follow will equally be flawed. And we will see that in this particular instance, the people were so angry that they actually wanted to stone Christ. So I wouldn't say that uh, these questions that these people were asking were questions that were coming from uh, a good heart because they were coming from a belief system that was contrary to the will of God. Now, also here, we also learned that Jesus is trying to teach them that, look, yes, um, you know, the Jewish people are chosen, but God can show grace to whom, whoever he wants to show grace to. He decides how he dispenses the grace that he has. So he can go outside of a chosen people uh, to an unchosen people and show grace to individuals in, in those lands too. So the point here is that even though Christ chose the nation Israel, he also decided even in those times to show mercy to people who were coming from other lands. And that actually is a very important uh, point about Jesus' ministry. He showed mercy to Gentiles. And of course, as we know today, this was just the beginning of things to come uh, when these miracles were done. Which is the, We today are the evidence of what was to come back then when this message was shown to the, the widow of Zarephath and uh, to Naaman of, of Syria. So God chooses nations, but he could also choose individuals in a nation. And that's something that uh, the Jewish people needed to understand back in the days. But it was difficult for them to, to understand that. And then also the fact that the message of, of Christ was inherently a message of grace. Uh, and it's not a message that um, was preserved for people who only deserved. Right? Um, we, the message wasn't meant for people who had lived a righteous life and were deserving and all of that. It is a message of grace. That's inherently uh, the message uh, that Christ was trying to get across to them. But as we said, um, this is something that they did not like. And um, their reaction was, uh, uh, was evil in that sense. Um, so that, is, um, th that was the first instance where Jesus encountered opposition as, as, as recorded uh, by, by Luke. But of course, we know that that did not stop there. Uh, there are other types of opposition that he encountered uh, that we were going to be talking about. So moving on from there, um, you know, we want to move on to uh, uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 30, 31 through 32 where, again, Jesus uh, has moved from Nazareth, and he is now in Capernaum. Now, many people have said Capernaum was his headquarters. Uh, uh, so in Capernaum, the message was received more favorably than in Nazareth. So he is, this time around, he is uh, not in a hostile crowd. He is in a friendly crowd. But I want you to watch out, because 
there could still be opposition there. That is, that is one of the things that we have to understand. So he's now in a place where the message has been received and people are happy to see him whenever he comes around. Uh, and, and so he goes into a synagogue. So if you read from Luke chapter 4, verses 31, uh, it says that, and he, came to, uh, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. So again, he finds himself in a synagogue, and the, the Bible records that, that it was his custom to go to the synagogue. And for me, I think this is also very important. That even though he was Christ, he was the Messiah, he always made time to go and fellowship with the people of God wherever he was. So um, in our days, uh, people will say, well, I don't need to go to church. I can stay home and, 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 and watch TV and, and get all my sermons from the TV or even the Internet. Uh, just to let you know that Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and the Savior of mankind, found it necessary to go into a synagogue to fellowship with fellow believers. And I think that is a very important point for all of us to know, that fellowshipping with believers is absolutely important. The Bible says we should not forsake the assembling of the saints in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. As the days draw near, the assembling of the saints is supremely important. So let's, let's remind that. So anytime you are tempted to, 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 to resign and to say, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to church to worship God. Well, then you have to really question your intent. Uh, and that's what this message is talking about. This message is dealing with the thoughts of people, the belief systems of people. And that is what Jesus was tackling. So it was a very difficult message that Jesus was delivering to the people. Uh, so Jesus went uh, to Capernaum and he went into the synagogue. On Sabbath days, so there were people there, and Jesus began to teach. And here we see that um, Jesus taught uh, with, with power and with authority. Um, so uh, let, us, let us unbundle this a bit, right? Um, why, why would Jesus teach uh, in a synagogue? Why will he teach in a synagogue? First, he's teaching because uh, teaching was... Uh, a key aspect of the fulfillment of his messianic ministry. He needed to teach people and to explain what the kingdom of God meant uh, and, and to also for them to be able to understand it, what the kingdom of God meant uh, uh, in that sense, right? Because teaching involves impartation. Teachings involve, uh, 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 I guess, uh, uh, the opening of sights for people to see things differently from what they have been used to. So Jesus primarily used teaching as a means to bring exposition to his messianic ministry. And I believe that, um, you know, as you, as you read along in the book of Luke, you will see that in most of the miracles that he pe performed, uh, he often performed them after teaching. Not all of them, but in most cases. Because he wants, to bring, he wants to bring light, he wants to bring understanding before the miracles follow. So the point I'm trying to make here is that his primary goal was for people to understand his ministry. The goal is not for people to be healed and, and all of that. All of that is great. We'll talk about that now. Uh, but you need, we all need to understand that his goal was the salvation of the soul. The salvation of the soul comes through the preaching of the word, the delivery of the message, and an understanding of the message and a belief in that message. That is when a soul is saved. That is when a soul is saved. So the emphasis of Jesus' ministry is not so much on miracles. It is about teaching people for them to understand what 
the kingdom of God was all about. Okay? So he was teaching in, in, his, in, in the synagogue, uh, and the Bible said that uh, he taught with power. Everybody say power. Power. He taught with power. Now, uh, so this means that uh, Luke is trying to help us to get some perspective in terms of the nature of the teaching that Jesus did. Uh, you will note that um, before Jesus taught in the synagogue, or in addition to Jesus' teaching, there are people who also teach in that same synagogue. There are rabbis who are dedicated to teaching. They are dedicated to study of the word of God and teaching the people. So uh, when the listeners had Jesus' uh, uh, teaching, they were trying to, Luke is trying to compare that with the teaching that was either done before or after him. So he's trying to make a distinction. This type of teaching is with what? It's with power. Unlike the other ones that we have heard. See, so that is a very important distinction. Right? So he taught with power in contrast to the teachings that they have heard from the rabbis. And one would ask, why will Jesus be able to teach with power and authority compared to what uh, messages were preached by the rabbis? The first answer to this is that Jesus was the author of that word. Amen? You know, we, we live in a world where experts are, are valued, right? Most of us are here uh, because we are so-called experts in our field and we are sent over here to do work. And so when there is a problem in a particular place, they are looking for experts in that particular area to, to, to advise. So here, Jesus is the expert of that word. He owns the word in this particular case. He, right? he, he's bringing a perspective to the word that nobody else before him or after him will, will ever be able to do. So that is why he could teach with power. The word that was written in the Torah was altered by him. He spoke through those people. He spoke through Moses and all those people who wrote those words for them to speak the word or for them to write it down. So um, Jesus could teach with power because he is the author of the word. And indeed, John chapter 1 verse 1 confirms this. He said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, with him was everything made and without him was nothing made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Uh, so you see that this word is Jesus himself. That is why he could teach with authority. Um, and so the first point there for us to also understand is that if we are trying to understand this word uh, and also to teach it, for those of us who are attempting to teach this word, then it means that we have to go to the author of the word in order to understand what he is saying, uh, in order for us to teach it properly. And also in order for us to apply that word properly. So those of us that are teaching always have to go back to the altar. And those of us that are listening, in order for us to understand that word and to apply it in our lives, we need to go back to the altar. And this is a continual thing. You can go back to the altar today and then you say, I am done. No, you have to continue to refer to the altar and continue to go back to him for understanding. So even the scripture that we are sharing today, if we really want to understand this, it is imperative that we go back to the altar and to spend time with the author for him to reveal to us what he means by his word. Amen? So this is a call on us to reverence the author, to acknowledge the author, and to seek the author of the word so that we can understand it and apply it in our lives the right way. 
because there is a wrong way to understand this word and there is a right way to understand it. And we'll see some of the evidence of this because uh, the, the enemy is very cunning. He can take that same word and apply it the wrong way. And Jesus was confronted with some of that in his ministry. The second point about teaching with power is that Jesus taught under the influence of the Holy Ghost. Amen? You recall that uh, in the book of Luke, when he was baptized, um, and then he went uh, to be tempted into the wilderness, the Bible said when he left the wilderness, he left filled with the Holy Ghost. And that is when his ministry began. So, the, the, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus was, sent, uh, was signified by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And so the power of the Holy Ghost was at work in the teachings that Jesus was delivering. So again, um, this also uh, explains that uh, we as followers of Jesus and we as believers of his word, in order for us to be effective uh, in administering the word or applying it in our lives, we need the same Holy Ghost to help us to do it. We can't do it on our own. If Jesus needed Holy Ghost to, to minister, then who are you and I to say we don't need it? We need it. We need the Holy Ghost to help us to be effective in delivering uh, uh, the work that Christ has called us onto. In fact, to even live a life of righteousness. So he said Jesus taught under the influence of the Holy Ghost and the anointing of God was upon him. Okay, so, um, so that is uh, for, for Luke chapter 4, verses 31. So he started to teach, and the Bible said he taught with power. And we've tried to explain why he could teach with power uh, compared to the teachings that the rabbis had given. Now, let's turn our attention and look at what the audience uh, did to the word. Again, the Bible said the audience was what? Astonished at his teaching. They were what? Astonished. They were surprised. They were maybe impressed. Let me, let me put it that way. I tried to search for the meaning of astonished uh, on, on the web. It says, greatly surprised, impressed, and amazed. That is the meaning of astonished. So Jesus made such an impression on their lives, supposedly. So they, they, they heard this word. They haven't heard it before. Uh, the way it came across, the way it was presented, it was so different. But when I was studying this, I was asking, was it all about it? Was it all about being astonished by the word? And I want you to ask yourself this question as you hear the word of God. Is it all about being astonished? Is that where it ends? For me, if you look at this group of people, um, you can see that most of them did not go beyond the astonishment, which is, the ex which is what Jesus really wanted to get to. He did not come to impress them with his preaching. Jesus did not come to impress the world with his teaching and ability and mastery over the word of God. That was not his mission. Far from that at all. What he wanted was the hearts of people that their lives would be transformed by the preaching of that word. Amen? That is the overriding goal. That is what he wants to get at. So being astonished and impressed at someone's preaching really doesn't mean much as a child of God. So as you listen to the word of God, please check. Are you just astonished? Are you just impressed? Are you just amazed? And I was reading this and I, I, I got the impression that most of them walk, walked away with this level of understanding. 
and yet their hearts were still uncircumcised and their hearts were far away from Christ. In the book of John, chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus was speaking. He said, these words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Amen? Words that he's declaring, they are spirit and they are life. They are life-transforming messages. And, and in Hebrew, chapter 4, verses 12, he said, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Right? He says that it's so sharp that it, it, it cuts between uh, soul and spirit and also divides uh, between a joint and a marrow. And it is a discerner of the intentions and the thoughts of the heart. That is how much the word of God can impact the lives of people. That is the impact. That is the real impact. After hearing the word of God, what happens to your intentions? What happens to your soul? Has there been a transformation in that soul? Or you just listen to it because of the quotations and the references and all of it, and then we walk away believing that we have heard something. So Jesus was not interested in that. So let's be careful as we listen to the word of God because primarily Christ is after our heart and he wants us to render our hearts unto him. In the book of Joel, chapter 3, verses 13, he said, render your heart and not your clothes. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And so that is what he is looking for. But the audience were just impressed. And they just kept listening on. But there are certain things that will happen that I'm sure that will draw the attention in a moment. So let's focus on, on, on the key trust of a message and not all the other things that are happening. Indeed, sometimes you will find that Someone may bring the message, the person may not be that coherent or something like that, but there is a key thrust to the message that I believe that we should be looking out for. And uh, if we do that, we will walk away blessed and not just impressed. Amen? Amen. And so, um, so Jesus was teaching the people who are astonished, and what happens next? And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the teaching... In the middle of the teaching, as we go to uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, verses, verses 33, he says, And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice. Hello? Can you hear me? There was a man in the synagogue who had what? An unclean spirit. I watched that and I said, wait a minute. What, what on earth is a demon doing in a church? Did, have you stopped yourself to ask that question? So, so they're having a service. Jesus is teaching and the word of God is coming powerfully and people are impressed. And yet there was someone who had an unclean spirit over there. So the question is, a demon-possessed person in a church? What is he doing there? Um, and as we know, he was teaching in Capernaum. So I asked further questions. I said, how long has he been a member of that synagogue? <laughs> That's a question because he's been under the tutelage of rabbis, uh, some of whom are very well uh, acknowledged, I would say. They are experts and so on. Uh, and they are authorities and so on. So how long has this man sat under their tutelage? And then the other question I asked was, what are his goals and expectations of coming to church that day? 
I'm, I'm inclined to think that he must have heard that Jesus was coming to town. And he wanted to come there. Was he visiting for the first time? That's a question you might want to ask. Um, um, and why was he visiting to begin with? Uh, was he coming to verify the claims that people Jesus was making? Or was he coming to verify the fame that he has said that Jesus has? To check on his power and to see whether or not this, this power that he claims to have is real. That is why I was saying that it's important that we anchor our faith on the altar of the word because that faith will be tested. And that is why I said that from the beginning. You need to make sure that we are doing that and that we are walking under the influence of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus came under attack or his message came under attack. The person uh, in the church did not keep quiet. Okay, so he said, and there was a man in the synagogue who was possessed with an unclean spirit. So we identified a man. Okay, so we know this is the object or this is the target, whatever it is. And let's find out what he does. He says five things that will blow your mind. That you will never expect a demon to say in many ways. He says, one, the man exclaims saying, let us alone. That is the first thing he said. I will say everything he said, and then we'll go through them one by one. And uh, I know our time is running out. We should, we should bring our message to an end. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, he says five things, which are very important. I want you to take note. Let us alone. That's the first thing he said. The second thing he said, what have we to do with you or with, with thee in King James uh, English? And then he says, thou Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us? before our time. And then the final thing he said, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Five things. That are, that are, you know, that's a lot for uh, a demon-possessed man to put out. I don't know how much time they gave him to say all those things. Um, yeah, but there are places where they will shut you down. By the time you, start, you get to the second one, they will say, keep quiet. You are disturbing the service. Um, but five things this man said that I think are absolutely important for us to understand. Because I believe that these are, this is a revelation into the spiritual world uh, that we believers have to understand. And I know saying this because, you know, in a lot of us, those of us coming from the West, when we talk about the spiritual world, sometimes it sounds superstitious and, 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 and creepy and all of that. But it cannot get as real beyond this. This is real. And, uh, you know, look at, look at the battleground. The battleground is not somewhere in a cult. It's not somewhere in a shrine. Somewhere on, 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 somewhere on a mountain somewhere with somebody sitting somewhere. It's in where? It's in a church. That is the battleground. So the first thing you have to understand that the enemy knows no limits in terms of where he decides or picks his battles. Amen. He can decide to pick that battle in a church. He can decide to pick it in your house before you left and came to church. He can decide to pick it at your school. He can decide to pick it at your workplace. He can decide to, to pick it in your nation or in your community, in your environment, wherever he is. He can decide where he wants to pick that battle. So that's the first thing you have to understand. And then the, first, uh, the other thing he said is that leave us alone. Now, you have to take notice that this, the, the preceding verse said there was an unclean man. But the man starts speaking, and he speaks in plural terms. 
He's speaking to him. He said, leave us alone. You and who? Who is the other accomplice in the room who he was speaking uh, on behalf of? I mean, these are questions that I have on my mind. I don't know the answer, but we might, get a bit, we might dig a bit into this. But he said, leave us alone. And all the statements that he said, the first statement was, leave us alone. Number, number two, we have nothing to do with you. You and who? Who is he talking about? Well, he is just talking about the evil world, the demonic world. It might not be other people around in the same room who have the same demon. Otherwise, they would have spoken up. Because in the presence of the master Jesus, no demon can keep quiet. His presence alone should cause you to speak up. Because when the truth is revealed, it applies to everyone the same. Amen? So if there were other people, I'm sure Luke would have recorded it. So this one, this man was alone, and he was speaking uh, on behalf of the evil world. So whatever he said represented what the mindset of those people uh, that uh, he represented was. So leave us alone, number one. So in other words, we don't have anything to do with you. So it is, is it true that um, Christ has nothing to do with the evil world? Is it true? Um, is it the case that, um, 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 you, know, um, you know, those of us that, that have come to subscribe to the faith have nothing to do with the evil world? Leave us alone? Is that a common, is it something that we believe is true? The answer is yes and no. The answer is yes because... We have no part in them. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? Huh? We should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So, the, the, the evil world, uh, if, if we take the evil world as a symbol of, of, of people who have rejected Christ and have, have walked away from his faith, the Bible says, we have nothing to do with them. And yet the Bible says we should reach out to them and, and preach the word of God to them. So you see, you and I are in a conundrum. Whilst we cannot be part of the evil world, we are called into the evil world. Amen? That is the position we find ourselves. So Jesus cannot leave him alone. He can't. He has to deal with the problem that he has. We can't leave the world alone for the world to die without Christ, it is our job and obligation to reach out to the world with the gospel. If you talk to somebody, if you talk to your friend and you say, leave me alone, you can shut your mouth immediately, but you can start praying for that person. Young people, are you listening to me? If you talk to your friend about Christ, come to church. He said, leave me alone. I have nothing to do with church. Then you know where this is coming from. He did not just quote that phrase. It is not him saying it but it's somebody who is expressing his intentions through that person. That's not his desire. He can't say, leave me alone. Because if he knows where he or she is going without Christ, he or she will not just say, leave me alone. Because the Bible makes it clear that we are condemned to the eternal hell of fire without Christ. So if we understand that, then my desire will be to be, close, to be as close as Christ as possible every day. I will not tell someone who is bringing me the good news, leave me alone. They don't understand it. And as Jesus said, one of his mandates was to open the eyes of those who are blind. Their minds have been blinded by who? The prince of this world, who has shut their eyes to the reality of the truth of the gospel. So they will say, leave me alone. So he, he wants to deflect attention from himself and the predicament that he finds himself in. 
And then number three, he said, I have nothing to do with you. We've addressed that question. Yes, you do. We have, to, we have to talk about business. You have to hear about the word of Christ. You have to be delivered from your predicament. And the reason is that, you know, people who have this uh, spirit cannot deliver themselves. That's the reality. You can't deliver yourself. You need somebody else who has a higher power than you to deliver you. And that person is Jesus Christ. So what he was saying, in fact, was to his disadvantage. But that's what the enemy will do. He will let us do things to our disadvantage, capitalizing on our ignorance. But I know that God has given us the truth, and we are entitled to share the truth. And I'll say the last thing, and I'll bring uh, my, my sermon to an end, because I still have a lot of questions we haven't answered. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens when you go uh, chapter by chapter. Um, so leave us alone. We have nothing to do with you. And then he says, have you come to destroy us before our time? So I, when, I, when, I, when I watch this, I say, does this mean that Satan or the, that demon is smarter than the other congregation that Jesus dealt with in Nazareth? Because at least he knows that there is some destruction of hell waiting for him. And so he said this trembling that have you come to destroy me before my time? That's how I read it. But there is another congregation that's out there that is taking the messenger and is willing to cast the messenger down headlong. So what is in between this? Is, is he smarter than those people? Don't these people realize that when they reject the gospel and they reject the message of grace, there is a consequence to it? Isn't there? I, I was just wondering. But I, my answer, and I'll, and I'll bring my sermon to an end, is that no, the enemy is not smarter than them. It's not smarter than them because these are things that are known to the enemy before he was dispatched from heaven. Jesus dispatched him at his disobedience to the work of God or to the authority of God. And so these are things that are known to him. But a lot of us are still struggling with understanding these very things that the enemy already knows. So you are dealing with an entity that has more information and knowledge than you are. It doesn't make him smarter than you, but it's just that he has the information. It doesn't mean that he uses it the right way because he, um, he misapplies the information. We don't have time to go into that, oftentimes, but he knows it. So you and I have an obligation. Do we know enough of the word of God? Do we know enough of why he has called us to be his children? And are we willing to make that step if we acknowledge that there is still more we can do? My answer is yes. There is more we can do. And this encounter with this entity tells us that we have to stand. We have to do well. We have, we have to do more to understand this faith that we've been called on to. We have to seek God to understand the word. And we have to allow the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to be effective in our Christian work. But let us remember that the enemy is out there. Uh, and he wills to do us harm. But please remember, the Bible said in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 33, he said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Amen? Christ has overcome the world. Amen? So we are victorious, but only when we continue to seek the altar of that word, only when we begin to ask the Holy Spirit to empower us. With that, we can overcome every enemy and obstacle that comes into our life. Thank you, and God bless you. Shall we pray?
Lord, we just ask you to help us to understand your word because we are still, in many ways, struggling with a lot of things that we don't understand with our limited minds. And for anyone that listening to me here that has questions on their mind, I pray that you will reveal yourself to them and help them to understand these things. In the name of Jesus, we've prayed with thanksgiving. Amen.